Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. This fall, we are opening up the letter of 1 John. We believe it is a timely book in the life of the church. John is writing to a church that is divided over theological differences and confusion about how to follow Jesus in the midst of division. John's answer is love. God's love for us is immeasurable, and so our love for one another should be as well. It's a call to unity and care for one another in the midst of division. We're glad that you've joined us for this series. If you are interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30 a.m. The beginning of the letter, 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. <coughs> Excuse me, the word of the Lord. <coughs> Pardon me. As we begin a new series, we say to the Lord in his presence, Lord Jesus Christ, we hear thunder in your speech. We see lightning in your acts. Storm through these souls of ours. Wake the sleeping parts. Raise the dead parts. Stand us on our feet, alert and praising God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. <clears throat> I declare Christmas. <laughs> I'm glad we're doing it in September. We will not be inebriated with nostalgia or Christmas cheer or eggnog. We will see Christmas with clear eyes, full heart, what it really is that we believe, what Christmas really means. And I couldn't think of a better time to do this because, as Paul shared earlier, this has been a rough stretch for the church. Waterstone, all our gospel partners, this has been a really, really hard year and a half. There has been disease and brokenness and grinding and depression. There's been division politically, pandemically, all kinds of disagreements, uh, of separation, uh, uh, loss of vision and mission. We have, in a very real sense, been broken over these last months. And I couldn't think of a better letter to read for the next eight weeks together than this letter. Because in a very real sense, John's audience, the original audience, 
has very much common ground with us. They too knew pandemic. They too knew grinding and discouragement and death. They too knew what it was to have disagreements on what it means to follow Jesus. And they had serious disagreements on who Jesus is and what he wants. Their words received will be our words received from the Spirit through John. And we believe that we will be a changed church at the end. But for this morning, John declares Christmas. He starts as if to say, look, I know what you're going through. I know it's been a hard run. What you need is Christmas. And so we begin with, hey, Merry Christmas. It's weird, right? In September. It could not be better because what John's going to declare is that Christmas is, first of all, doctrine and doctrinal, and we need doctrine. Second, John's going to declare that Christmas is historical, stubborn history. And lastly, John's going to declare Christmas is relational, full joy relationship. That's where we're going. Do you want to dive into some doctrine? Shall we? Let's look at beginning of 1 John, these verses. Doctrine, to define the word, is truth that claims to be from above, from divine source, brought to earth, proclaimed, and we have to respond in faith. Doctrine, teaching from God. Notice where John begins with it. He's saying that life, that which was from the beginning. So whoever he's talking about here, which we discover is Jesus, saying that he was preexistent. He lived before we lived. He lived before the creation of the world. From the beginning, we've heard, we've seen, we've touched. And then he says, the life appeared. Uh, it was with the Father. So massive claims here. This is doctrine, teaching. And what's it saying? Two things. One, it's saying that this Jesus is part of a trinity that lived with the Father from all eternity. Now, you need to understand that that makes Christianity different from other world religions, which have a unipersonal God, just a one-person God, who made everything and made human beings for relationship. Christianity says that the Jesus lived in a trinity with the Father and the Spirit, and that we were made, get this, from relationship from a loving community, from the very uh, eternal time, that's, I can't even say it, because there's no time in eternity. From eternity past, it's been love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we were made to be invited into that love. Wow, doctrine. But not only that, Jesus is in the Trinity. Secondly, Look at this phrase, word of life. Now, John's being really, really missional here. He uh, lives in Ephesus, which was a city center in what is now Western Turkey. And in his, his churches, he's a bishop over a number of churches. There's two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, which have both come now to Jesus. And to the Jews, this word, word, 
It's a great word. They would have thought of Genesis 1. God spoke and everything came into existence. They would have thought of things like Psalm 33, 6, which said, the breath of God made the starry host. It was this creative, generative power that uh, God has. And so they would have thought, yes, uh, I connect to this. It's the Greek word logos, which comes into English as logic. The logic is God spoke the word into existence. So the Jews are listening. But John also knows that the word logos would connect to his Greek audience, which uh, in that time had a guy named Heraclitus who led a philosophical movement called the Stoics. And the Stoics used the word, word, logos, to describe the operational principle that uh, is why the world exists. In our day, it would be similar to the theory of evolution, uh, a particular theory that explains how things came to be. So he's got both audiences listening, the, the, the Jews listening to this generative, powerful word, and the Greeks listening to the theory that's behind everything and explains the universe, this logos. Now, here's what John does to both sides. What he says is, I'm telling you that what will capture you and what will be true to you, what will become doctrine to you, is not that I'm going to give you an airtight argument that explains the reason we exist. I'm going to give to you, what? An airtight person. A person. Because let's be honest. A rational explanation for all that exists, it might be curiosity fulfilling, but it will not fill our hearts. What we need is a loving relationship from the one who made us, who spoke us into existence. And John says, it's a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. So, it starts there, John proclaiming Jesus to be in Trinity, to be with God in, from all existence. God, but notice, poured into a human body that we could see, that we could hear, that we could touch. It's God become man. It's word become flesh. It's this doctrine that we call the incarnation, that this insane majesty that we've just sang about has poured in to an insane meekness, a human body. And the word became flesh, became one of us, pursued us so much that Jesus, the Son of God, entered St. John's bathroom book. That's right. There's a book called uh, John's Bathroom Book, and our boys read it in junior high. We had it on the toilet. They'd sit there, do their business, and read about the human body. St. John's Bathroom Book said things like, every week, human feet sweat a gallon of perspiration. Woo! Ah. Every 20 minutes, the human head recycles all the snot therein. Uh, by the end of a lifetime, you will shed enough dead skin scales to weigh 40 pounds, which we really strongly encourage our junior high boys to take showers. <laughs> Don't miss the point. The point is this insane majesty became part of John's bathroom book. This Jesus 
came to experience the human condition apart from sin, but he had sweaty feet and a snotty nose. Can you imagine majesty becoming a snotty savior? What is that? That's doctrine that says God wants you and I as in, and is in pursuit of us so much that he would come down to a runny nose. Now, again, I, I just want us to linger here for a moment. 1961, year before I was born, there was a Soviet premier in Russia by the name of Khrushchev. And actually, my nickname for my formative first years was Khrushchev because like Khrushchev, I had no hair until I was in kindergarten. And then I lost most of my hair by the time I was a senior in high school. So I've only had hair for 13 years, folks. Okay? That's okay. Same with Elijah. Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. No. Where was I? Uh, Khrushchev said, 1961, we launched the cosmonauts into space. They circled the, the globe. Khrushchev stands behind a lectern and says, we Russians know that there is no God, and now our cosmonauts were there, and they did not see God. Well, one of the first to respond was an American astronaut who shall remain, remain nameless, but he said, well, if they would have just stuck their head out the window, they would have seen God right away. C.S. Lewis, one of our heroes, had a more measured response. He wrote an essay called The Seeing Hand. And what Lewis said was, look, and it was inspired, by the way, by Khrushchev. He said, it's the wrong metaphor. Think about it. Seeing God and having him come to us is not going to be like us living on the first floor of an apartment, finding where the stairs are, going up to the second floor and saying, oh, God, here you are. No, it's the wrong metaphor. Here's the metaphor. Lewis says, learning God is like Shakespeare and Hamlet. And the only way that Hamlet knows that Shakespeare exists is if Shakespeare is going to write something of himself into the play. Hamlet will not figure out God by going up into the rafters in the theater. No, God has to come down. He has to write himself into the play. And what the doctrine of the incarnation says, that God not only came down and wrote himself into the play, he came all the way down and became a character in the play. That's the teaching. That's the incarnation. That God became one of us so that we could find him and know him. Now, that has two massive implications that are deep and wide. Deep is this. This is why every human being is a story animal. Every human being is looking, and I say this at funerals all the time, that every human being has never lived a moment of their life without faith in a story that somehow explains their existence and frames up what the world means, why we're here, what's life after death, you know, the big questions. Every person believes a story that gives meaning to their lives, even if that story is there is no meaning. We're story creatures. Where does that come from? 
It's a deep doctrinal space in our heart. So there's Christian and there's Charles. Christian, they're in a coffee shop. Christian says, I want to talk today about the resurrection and why I believe it and why it gives joy to my heart. And Charles, who's an atheist, says, well, no, there is no God. And by the way, I resent you trying to force your beliefs on me. What just happened there? A doctrinal exchange. Because Charles, though atheist, says there is no God, what is that? That's a faith position. Even scientists have to agree at some point there's a jumping off, and that jumping off is to say, well, there is no God. That's a faith position. But there's a second faith position that was exchanged there. It's called persuasion. When Charles says there's no God and you shouldn't be telling me otherwise, what's that? Persuasion. He's trying to get Christian to see things from his point of view. There's always faith and there's always persuasion. We are doctrinal creatures. And John chooses to start there to say, look, it begins with your doctrine. What you believe deep down in your heart, what stories you hold to be true, it starts there. That's Christmas and I'm starting with Jesus. So we start there, we pause for a minute. I just wanna take a brief break. Don't, if you need to go to the bathroom, go, but don't, please don't leave. Brief break though, because not only is this doctrine idea sit deeply in the human heart, it's also wide in its influence. What I want is for just a moment to have a little bit of fun here and to see how widely influential the doctrine of Jesus Christ has been, that the word became flesh and that doctrine just won't go away. In fact, it continues to unite people that we should never have in the same sentence. Here's what we mean. Look at the people Jesus brings together, Jesse Jackson and Jerry Falwell, Jim Wallace and Jim uh, Dobson, Anne Lamott and Thomas Kincaid, Billy Graham and Billy Sunday and Bill Clinton and Bill Shakespeare. Bono, woo! And Bach and Bev Shea, who used to sing with Billy Graham. Galileo and Isaac Newton and Johannes Kepler and Blaise Pascal. Thomas Aquinas and Thomas Akempis. G.K. Chesterton and T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. George Washington and Denzel Washington and George Washington Carver and Sojourner Truth and Robert E. Lee. And that is a tough one. And Constantine and Charlemagne and Sarah Palin and Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter and George W. Bush and John Milton, and John Bunyan. And I added Mr. Rogers and Roger Staubach. I added that for Casey and for Paul, who, uh, you know, have the glaring weakness of rooting for a scrimmage team called the Dallas Cowboys. We need to let Casey know where he stands if he comes to Denver. Doctrine of Jesus reaching around the world and bringing people together. John proclaims, in this time, for this season, we need Christmas. And Christmas is a doctrine. The word became flesh. But notice, secondly, that uh, the, the question is, and I ask this at funerals, the question is, where do you get your evidence for the story you believe? Because everything sits on evidence. Everything. More on that in a minute. What I want to start with here is John saying, we saw him. 
we heard him and we, we touched him. We embraced him. What, what was it like for John to be able to write that? Here's, here's day one. Here's the moment from Luke 5 that John met Jesus. You might remember that John had a brother named James, and they had a friend named Peter, and the three of them ran a fishing business. They were fishing on a particular morning, not a great morning, so they wrapped things up. They were packing their gear, cleaning their nets, boats about 100 yards away, when all of a sudden there was this commotion. They looked over, and a crowd was gathering around their boats. There was a strange guy standing in Peter's boat, and they'd moved it out about 10 yards on the water because in that day, that was your sound system, your voice bouncing off the water. You could speak to thousands of people. Peter, James, and John run over there. You're in our boat. And Jesus sees them coming, and he says to them, remember Peter, James, John, fishing company. Jesus says to them, hey, if you go out into the deep water and put your nets down, you'll catch fish. Can you imagine what they were thinking? Like, who in the world do you, are you power bait? What are you, who are you? Peter says rather snarkily, we fished all night, we didn't catch anything. But there was something about the presence of this guy that the next thing and thought Peter has is, but we'll try it. <laughs> they go back out in the water, deep water, which, you know, you usually catch fish closer to shore. They, they have so much fish in their nets now that they have to have people from the shore run out and help them drag them in. Luke says that when Peter, when they got all the chaos under control and they were there, that Peter fell down before this strange guy. And he said to him, go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. Peter, James and John, who would follow him, realized that they were in the presence of holy other greatness. And left to themselves in the presence of this person, they weren't going to make it. And Jesus responds to them by saying, look, from now on, you're in my fishing business and you will help me catch people for God. The point, my friends, is that that's day one. That's the first day. And John was not separate from Jesus' side for the next three years. That's one day. At the end of the gospel, John has this very beautiful little paragraph that says, Look, we saw so much stuff that there's not enough paper in the world to write it down. The question is how do we know it's true? John says, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, we saw all this stuff, but how do we know it's true? And the answer is evidence. You've got to figure out if the story you believe has good evidence. And I say evidenced by choice. It's not proof. You can't prove anything happened in history. 
It's not repeatable. You can't observe it again. The river flows. You know, you can't stick your foot in the same river twice. Same with history. You can't prove anything happened in history. It has to be based on evidence. So I could tell you this story. I could say that uh, you know, about 15 years ago, Jan and I and our two, at that time, little Khrushchev-looking toe-headed boys were down in Tucson at the Rocky Spring Training. We walk up to this one field, no players anywhere in sight, but all these television cameras were set up. Like, ooh, something must be happening. So we're standing there by along a fence, and our little boys, Ethan and Luke, are standing there looking as cute. They just, they can't, they couldn't turn it off back in that day. And uh, all of a sudden, from the dugout, we see this baseball, like, no human in sight, a baseball comes flying up and like right at us, I catch it. I notice right away there's a, something scribbled on it and it says, Larry Walker. Have you heard of Larry Walker? He must have seen me. No, maybe he saw the boys. He saw the boys, and he got a baseball, and he signed it, and he threw it out over the dugout at us. Now, you're saying, Larry, what's the evidence? Did that really happen? And what would I need to do? I'd need to produce the baseball, maybe? I could. I... uh, you know, one of the things you have to decide is the trustworthiness of the source. <laughs> Did that really happen? And the way that you make up your mind whether that story happened is the evidence that registers with you and you believe that it happened. The same is true with Scripture and with Jesus. You have to decide if this book the most historically documented ancient manuscripts in the history of the world. But you have to decide, are they trustworthy? You have to decide if this John, if these uh, 12 apostles in Acts 1, 11 of the 12 died for this. But here are the choices, right? You have to decide, uh, liar, liar, that did not happen. Or you have to decide, eyewitness testimony, it happened. The one choice you don't have (laughs) is what most shoppers in Target in December as they drink their caramel brulee latte think. They think, oh, Christmas, it's just a nice story. It's just a legend, a folktale like Santa Claus, the North Pole, and Jesus in a a manger. They think it's just a, a legend, and it's not a legend. Here's why. This is from Richard Bauckham, who teaches at Oxford, his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He said, here are your choices with the Christmas story. Either it's a lie or it's eyewitness testimony. It can't be a legend. Why? Because page after page after page in the New Testament, you read stories like this. John writing in John 6, after Jesus fed the five crowd of the 5,000 men, which is probably a crowd of 20,000, the disciples got on a boat to go to the next town where the mission journey was going to take them. Jesus was doing the healing business. He'd come later. They don't really inquire how he'd come, but he'll get there. And so they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and the text says they were three to three and a half miles out on the Sea of Galilee. That's uh, 25 to 30 stadia 
in the Greek, which a stadia was 607 feet. I remind you again that these guys ran a fishing business. They knew distance on water. They throw this detail in there, three and a half miles out on the water. Why? Because they want you to know we're in the deep here. And what happens? Jesus comes walking on the water. (laughs) Now, when you read other legends from that day, like Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, let's say, you would never read a passage like that or a detail like that. You would never read, oh, Achilles took on Hector in battle and they were about three miles from the wall of Troy. Never, because it doesn't establish character. It doesn't further the plot. The New Testament, time after time after time, you have these details of distance and time and who's there and who's not there, all these historic details. You either have to decide if what they're saying is just made up lies, all these random details, or if it actually happened. There's your choice. But you can't BS it by just saying, oh, it's a nice story. Either it happened or they lied. That's the choice we need to make in September before you get drunk with eggnog. Christmas, a doctrine deep, a stubborn history that won't go away. Both of those lead, if you believe them, to a joyful relationship. Back in the text, here's the reason we write this, that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. That word fellowship is one of those million-dollar words in the Christian religion. It's the idea of um, community. It's used in some translations as family. And that's where John's going with this. If you believe the doctrine and you accept the evidence, you are drawn into the circle of apostles who proclaim that to know Jesus is to know God, to be part of the family of God. And what does that mean? Well, it means at least two things. First, if you have God as your family, you know that he is always with you. God with us. You know, if you're in that fellowship, that you've never, even on the hardest day of your life, been without someone who knows what it's like to be you. Because Jesus became flesh. No other, Christi- no other religion is like this in Christianity, that a God knows what it's like to be hungry, homeless, broke, rejected, tired, weary, killable. No other God but this God. Let me, can I just, I'll come right at you with it. Are you broke today? So was he. Have you been like level A betrayed, rejected this past, so so did he. Have you been abandoned by friends that you thought were your, Same with him. Have you had a big prayer go unanswered when all you hear is silence? So did he. 
He knows. You've never been alone without someone not knowing where you are and how you're feeling on the worst moments of your life. I was reading this past week a writer named Damien Strykite, and uh, he was telling his spiritual journey. He's a great writer. He he said that uh, his dad died two days before his high school graduation. And um, he had just himself in high school become a Christian. And so, honestly, he says, the reason I did that was for fire insurance. I just wanted to go to heaven. But all of a sudden, within weeks of becoming a follower of Jesus, I'm asking these questions about God. How does life work? Why would you allow this to happen? How are my mother and my two younger sisters and I going to get through this? And he started writing even uh, in a journal and saying, God, God, I will wait for you to speak. I will wait for you to speak. A couple days later, they have the funeral for his dad and the church is packed and the family sits on the front row and the pastor gets up and he says some nice things. Damien says, but he didn't hear God speak. And then the tradition in the church was after the service, people come down to the front, the family stays there, the receiving line and they share their condolences. And and Damien said, but I... I didn't hear, I was waiting for God to speak. After the receiving line was almost empty, Damien looks out and he sees this girl named Kim O'Quinn and he knew her, they were in the youth group together. She comes up to him, tears on her face and just embraces Damien and breaks, weeps. And they just stand there for 10 seconds, 20 seconds. And then she leaves. And Damien remembers that the last time they had even talked was when her father had passed away and they had a funeral in the church four months earlier. And in that moment, Damien said, through her tears, God spoke. God, online, in this room, you're here To hear, God is with you today. He's not only with you, he's for you. For you, like like this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have the undying life of God. Jesus is for you. I mean, he's in your corner, but he's actually a gift, right? Merry Christmas. Here's your gift, Jesus. He lived the life we should have lived, so his righteousness becomes ours, so that when we fall before Jesus like Peter did, Jesus said, hey, get up. You're righteous. You're declared righteous in my sight. You can live with me forever. We can be face to face. And then, because he died the death we should have died, God will say to us, you're forgiven. Sins? What sins? I remember them no more. Jesus is for you, given to you as a gift so that you can live in the fellowship forever. Will you receive him today? That's the question. The doctrine has come, the evidence laid out. The purpose is whether or not you will enter the fellowship. All you need say is, Jesus, save me. Right now, right where you are, home, here, Jesus, 
save me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we, what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Jesus, we hear thunder in your words. We see lightning in your acts. Storm through this soul of mine. Wake the sleeping parts. Raise the dead parts. Stand us on our feet, alert and praising God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Would you stand and let us proclaim? Proclaim.